Breaking down Wisconsin basketball. This is The Swing with Zach Heilprin and Jesse Temple on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. And welcome into The Swing here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. I'm Zach Heilprin, no Jesse Temple. However, great interview coming up here in a little bit with Orlando Tucker, Wisconsin's assistant coach, also the all-time leading scorer in program history. We get into a, a ton of things. Obviously, what's going on in society right now is a, a huge part of the conversation and, and his voice in that conversation. And then also get into some of the uh, pay-for-play and uh, his message when he goes on the uh, road to recruit players and you know, kind of his pitches in that sense. And then also what he sees in this team uh, coming up this fall and the high expectations that they're going to have. And then also uh, get into his career a little bit as well and some of his favorite moments, including his favorite dunk and the story behind that famous picture of where he's just hanging up right by the rim. So all that coming up here through an extended interview, about an hour interview uh, with Orlando Tucker. Here he is. And we do bring in Wisconsin assistant coach Orlando Tucker here on the swing. Orlando, appreciate you joining us. This is a Wisconsin basketball podcast, and we'll definitely get into basketball in a little bit. But I think the place we have to start is, you know, what's going on in society right now in terms of uh, the push for social justice reforms and racial equality. And we've seen athletes, actors, politicians, um, all kinds of celebrities out at uh, Black Lives Matter rallies in recent weeks since the killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. I know you took your kids downtown here in Madison, took pictures in front of some of the murals that have uh, been put up on uh, the boarded up businesses on State Street. But you also released a poem and a video to go along with it. I think it's uh, the first of a series that you're doing uh, called Poetic Justice. Uh, The one that you released is called Money Buys Me Privilege My Color Can't Afford. I know you said you wrote it after the killing of uh, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, but uh, what led you to put it out for public consumption now? Um, Well, I think um, people are in search People are in search. Naturally, human nature, um, for the most part, you search for leaders, right? I think, you know, if you look at, like, Animal Kingdom and PAX, and I don't want to uh, stray too far away, but just uh, from the answer. Uh, but if you look in the Animal Kingdom, there's natural alphas, and you have most of betas, right? People follow, right? And I think I've always naturally had a leadership position. I've always taken that. I've always had a voice, um, and I always I was never afraid to use it. So I think from that sense... I think we're in a time of need right now. We're in search of leadership. We're in search of leadership in the country. We're in search of leadership within institutions. And I think this is a time where I wanted to release to the world, you know, um, that leadership. I wanted to unleash it and show the world that, hey, you know, it's bigger than sport with me. Um, For the most part, I'm known mostly for the sports side, but uh, it's bigger. And I wanted to show people that don't be afraid to come out of your shell. Don't be afraid to be unapologetically you, um, um, and that doesn't isn't limited to the color of your skin, um, your gender, your sexual orientation, your political, um, you know, followings or your political following or your religious backing. So again, I wanted to come out as a way to show the world again um, that this was also something that was written long before. This was something that I wrote it after that, but it was it's been written based on my life as a black man in America. Right. And you, and uh, you wrote, not in in that particular poem, but in another Instagram post, that uh, that your lives, the, the lives of black people, are a mockery of the American way. What do you mean by that? So so if you understand the natural uh, build of the country, and if, I, I, so I've been, you know, I try to go back and I try to study history, and I try to, you know, again, if I want to know how to move today, in order to prep me for the future. So if I can move in the present in order to prep me for the future, I have to understand my past. So I go back and I study, you know, I try to do my due diligence in that sense. And when I say, if you look at how the nation was built, right. And I don't want to go into too many depths. I think people can read and can, can Google and understand that the nation was built. It wasn't built with the understanding of my culture being held in an equal stance. And so when you say that and you say, but it also talks about the land of the free, we're a civilized country. And you cannot say that if we're still um, acting in uncivilized manners or we're still treating people and oppressing people, no matter, you know, it's not only just uh, because of the skin of your colors, because of sexual presence or orientation, it's multiple different things because of religious beliefs. If we continue to do that, 
it's hard to call ourselves the, you know, the, 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 the free world. It's hard to, you know, to say this country is the land of the free, right? So um, it's never proven that from day one that the country was built, when it was built on treachery and it was built on. So, again, when we talk about that and we talk about equality, this is a stance where I say if we're going to say that, if we're going to say that, then let's live it. Because till date, what you've shown, what the country's shown, my, my, my race has that we don't really matter. Um, and it is a mockery of what we say is the land of the free. And, you know, um, you know, just, a, again, America's dream. The American dream, you talk about that all the time. Well, what does that look like? Because it's different when you're, you're black in America. How scary is that for a father of two, soon to be three boys, growing up in America um, right now? Is it, I, I feel like you're, you're speaking out not just for, obviously, your race, but because your kids are growing up like this, right? I mean, your, your kids are yeah. growing up in this society, and you don't want them to have to deal with everything that you've dealt with. Exactly right. The fear comes. The fear comes because at some point the cub is going to grow up and become a lion, and then it strays out into the wilderness by itself. Right, and this world is a complete jungle right now, and it's your fear for that. I fear for that because I say, yeah, I can raise them and I can do all this and I treat them well, but it's also tough that you have to raise kids by a different set of rules because of the color of their skin. How fair is that? Like that's that's unfair, right? That I have to talk back. And my brother, so complete disclaimer and, and open honesty, my bro, my so my. My brother, my older brother, is a police officer uh, in the Chicagoland area. He served in the military. So when I'm talking about, like, I have a brother, and I have multiple different friends that's in the military. We talk about different things, man. We talk about fighting for the country. We talk about uh, history. When, but at the end of the day, when you have to raise, when I have to sit here and talk to my kids about what to do when they're pulled over by a police, and I have to have these conversations now, or how to behave when you're on a basketball court and a kid calls you, may, you know, use a racial term or a hatred or uh, a hate motivated um, speech or, or phrase, and how do, how do you have to talk about that? Or how are you going to be looked at as the only black kid in your class? And why you have to do certain things and maneuver certain things that can't say certain things, you know? And how? So it's again when you have to raise kids in that manner, it's just sad for the world. It's hard for me to, you know. Again, I appreciate and I can escape, but my escape has always been basketball because I grew up in a rough society. Um, and so I was able to escape because of basketball. And basketball and sport has always bridged the divide, right? And that's why I love. I think sport, again, one of my quotes, biggest quotes that I follow is life is much bigger than sport, but sport is an enabler to help us become better at life, right? You learn so many disciplines. You learn team uh, orientation. You learn how to set goals. You learn how to defy odds. You learn how to be resilient. You learn how to keep getting up after you're knocked down. So with that, you know, I try to teach my son that correlation of life. Um, but it's just sad. It sucks. It sucks that you have to do that. And, and you know, now it's, it's okay when it's you, but, I mean, imagine any father, any mother out there that has to have a fear of something, you know, of losing their child. But, you know, as a black father, you have that fear just by letting them out the door. Obviously, you, you do have a voice, but I know, I know you also said that you've silenced this part of you for a little bit too long. I'm wondering what it was like for you to walk on campus in 2002. I imagine that was a pretty uh, significant culture shock for you, you know, coming here from where you were from. Were you forced to hide who you were when you were on campus at Wisconsin? Um, yeah, yeah, right? There's so many stereotypes, like, right, for athletes in itself, right? But then you get, you had black to that. So a black, you know, a black athlete, there's ultimately a lot of stereotypes. Look at the stereotypes that hit mainstream news, right? When you have an anchor telling, you know, a, a, a basketball player to shut up and dribble. Yeah. And you had, you know, so these types of narratives, are, again, they hit mainstream, but those are the cultures that that's the, that's the, the language that we, we kind of hear. It's exuded to us from, you know, we're, since I could remember dribbling the basketball, right? So, again, it's hard for – and this is not even just for athletes, though. It's hard for the, the human mind to be able to see someone do something great and then can imagine or fathom that they can be great at something else or do something else, right? They will always see them in a certain light, and you place in these bubbles because of that. So, you know, I – for I had to behave and I had to operate in that same sense of, okay, people know me for basketball. I don't want to stray too far away from that because, you know, again, I had hopes and dreams of going to the NBA. I don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, for the world to think that I'm distracted by any other way than just presenting myself as a basketball player. Now on the local level and, and again, amongst my enclave or my friends and, those guys knew who I was. They knew I, you know, they knew I was a poet since I could remember. They knew, you know, I loved to write music and, and things of that nature, and I was a creator. 
But I just had to silence that to the rest of the world because I didn't think it would be accepted. When you got to the NBA, were you able to be a little bit more outgoing? I I, I was going to say this for later, but uh, I was going around on YouTube and I saw you and Shaq super badge, and I was you know and I was like, okay, all right. I don't I didn't remember that. I I probably saw it back in the day, but I don't I didn't necessarily remember that. But were you able to be kind of more yourself in public once you got to that point? Yeah, yeah, because I thought to myself, to my in my mind, I had thought I reached the pinnacle. So I got to the point where I needed to be and I could I could kind of unleash a little bit. But at the same time, I couldn't fully embrace that because it's like, hey, you know, you're still you're placed in a bubble. You're here to do a job. You got to be this. And if you and if you don't seem like you're giving your 100 percent to that, any any distractions outside of that, you there, there's a there's a scapegoat. There's a place that you can blame and say, hey, well, you're not completely devoted or focused because you're spending time doing this and you're working on – and times have obviously changed since then because of empo- the empowerment of athletes and certain brands and people standing out and becoming more business-minded in these, in these spaces that I think is, is again, it's, uh, it's circulating and it's, um, it's moving through uh, the masses in terms of sportsmen now where the idea of ownership and the idea of being yourself wholeheartedly and holistically, I think that's more accepted now, uh, p- partly because social media is bigger and so people can connect to the world on a, on a whole different scale than we could back then. But, again, it was tough. It was tough in that time for me to feel like I could fully embrace my holistic artistic self. It definitely has changed. Do you think there's still a little pushback, though? I mean, obviously, I feel like these last few weeks – there's been a, a significant change in people accepting that guys are going to speak out and that is their right and they should be able to do it. Now, there's always going to be people that say that they can't. You know, we, we've seen that from different areas of the world. But, you know, even a couple of years ago with with Nigel Hayes at Wisconsin, some of the things that he, you know, said, there was pushback and, and uh, you know, he took criticism for it. I feel like it's different. I think if he was at Wisconsin now, it might be a little bit different just because we're at a different time. Yeah, and and so I don't know the full di- like I was because I was gone. Right. To be completely honest, full disclosure, I was gone at the time, and I was aware I was traveling, I was overseas, so I was kind of aware of the com- uh, you know, some of the comments, but I was and I understand the, the narratives, but it's always things behind the scenes. So you know, I, I've come, I don't really know Nigel really well. We we passed, we passed crawl uh, or or crossed paths yeah. before, um, and kind of had conversations, but you know, I I don't know exactly the motive behind you know the message i don't think so i think i don't know how it was perceived and why it was perceived the way it was but i do think that now it would be perceived a little different uh potentially and looking at the landscape of just the ncaa in itself and uh where it's going to become a for-profit and i'm sure we can touch on this later but it's going to become a for-profit uh sport pretty soon here yeah so uh um you know and some of the, the things that he was talking about i think are relevant more now because the landscape at NCAA is is, uh, is changing in itself. Definitely would like to get that. I, I but I did want to talk about you know just one more thing in regards to this. Obviously, you guys dealt with the situation this past year uh, w- with Kobe King and uh, you know his initial comments to to Jim Polzin of the Wisconsin State Journal about how he felt that he was being treated like a servant, which obviously you know the racial connotations to that. But uh, and then the the story with Eric Helen using a racially insensitive word and in, in retelling a story. I feel like that was something that had a chance to rip the team apart. Uh, it seemingly pulled you guys tighter together. Uh, why do you think that was? Um, I think, again, not to say that was that was easy. That was a hard moment for everyone. And everyone's entitled. So in, in just complete honesty, sheer honesty, like Kobe's entitled to his opinion. Kobe's a, a, a good kid. Um, and we all experience the world in different lights, right? And the anecdote that I learned when I was a kid is uh, – it's just how two people can uh, interpret things, the message, or, or the wrong way, and, and they can come from the same environment or they can interpret it in their own mindset and their perspective of how they view life. So, you know, when Kobe in his situation, I mean, he's right to feel how he feels, and you can't take that away from him. Um, now, and then, you know, you couple that and you just add that on with the Eric Kellen situation, and then from a brand situation and you're looking outside optically looking in, it doesn't look good. But internally, the guys knew that. There was no turmoil. There was no – so narratives were put out and there were clickbait put out. But, I mean, um, Eric Helen, is Eric Helen a racist? No. Eric Helen, we've talked about this. He's openly said it. Was Eric Helen ignorant to a certain situation where he felt that he could take that moment back? And did he not put so much weight onto what he was saying at the time when he said it and how he said it? He understood, and he openly – the reason I can discuss this because it's open form, and he put that out there in the public, that – 
Eric, no. Like, you you watch The Last Dance and you see Eric standing next to Michael Jordan ton of other black athletes when I'm just watching The Last Dance. Yeah. Is this guy racist? No. Is this guy, when I talk to him and he's cried over the Howard Moore situation, right, and he's cried when, you know, this is going and cried on my shoulder and I cried on his, is, is this guy racist? No, but I know how narratives can hit and then you can't recover from a brand. It's hard to recover from that. So when you're going through this, yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, you got 18 and 22 year old, year, old, year old men, young men in the locker room you know, they know how they care for each other. So, and we had to, from a coaching standpoint, specifically my own experience of being traveling the world, playing and understanding this, this culture and this world, I had to share with them that you got to stick together at these moments. And what are you playing for? Reach down inside yourself and say, what is that why? And then how can I bubble that why up? Or how can I make that or energize and channel that energy so strong that I say, listen, nothing else matters in the world. I'm going to play for the person to the right and the left of me. And I think Coach Barr did a great job as well of managing and understanding and also empowering guys like myself and Joe and Dean Oliver to be able to step to the forefront at that point and say, listen, let's use our experiences. And, and I think that when we were able to bottle the guys in and bring them up and channel all of the emotions, it, we reciprocated it in the right way. So it was hard. It was tough. I won't say it's easy. But I think life, again, when I, I, I kind of threw that quote out there before, life is much bigger than sports. And right, what they were experiencing was the toughest side of life. So it was nothing in between those lines that you could throw at this group of guys that they can say, you know what, that's tougher than what I just had to deal with. You know, losing a friend or a mentor like in Eric Helen or losing a brother like Kobe. You uh, mentioned that outside perception of that situation when you and I don't know you haven't really been on been able to be on the road recruiting here I guess the, these last few months but like is it something that that you have to bring up is it something that has to be talked about when you are talking to you know 15 16 17 year old kids when you're trying to recruit them is it or is it not brought up at all um, in terms of the situation yeah. itself or just the climate the, of the world I guess you know the actual situation the, the, the situation but I guess the climate as well um, yeah, you have to address it, but like this isn't so, okay. So obviously, if you look down the board, and again, what I try to do, my this isn't something that's um, just uh, I would say a one-off or an, an anomaly just to Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin isn't in a bubble exempt from the rest of the world. If you look at all Power Five universities, if you look at the makeup of a Wisconsin versus the Indiana versus versus any other Big Ten school. If you look down the census and understand. Um, how the makeup, the majority is going to always be white. So regardless, you're going to deal with every, so a touch point of every single college is race, diversity, inclusion, equity. Those are every university is trying to tackle that. So everyone's going to have to address that. I think the way you change it, the way you can be a pioneer in it in itself is not what you say. It's about what you do and can show and can speak to the athlete. And it's not that what I can walk into a room and say, to athlete and say, hey, look what we're doing, because when they get here, these kids are not naive. When they get here, then they're going to say, oh, wait, wow, this is much different than what we were sold on. So we, and I challenge other universities and other institutions to start challenging the norms of what their environment is and their culture to really be accepting and not just put out mission statements. And that's been my charge since day one when I came here. Wherever I go is to don't just speak about something. You have to be the plan on saying we're going to be a part of the solution, not just saying it's a problem. How do you do that at Wisconsin? Because you, as there has, there is not. I mean, you look around the campus. Just being fair about it, it, there's there's not a lot of diversity on the campus. Yeah, you know, and you know, going back to the time that I was was down there, just you know, living downtown, it's white. I mean, it, it's yeah. uh, you know, significantly. And I don't know how you how do you tackle that when we all talk about race uh, inclusion and equality. How do you tackle it when there really isn't that kind of thing on campus? Yeah. So you can't. You can't. You also can't help where you live, right? right? And if you look at the dynamics and the senses of, like, I think it's 85% Wisconsin, 85% white. You got, like, two to some percent, I think, black, African-American. And don't quote me for sure on the numbers, but just kind of doing it. It's like, when you look at the senses, you can't help, right? It's going to be white. But I just, I have a problem when there's systematic um, th- uh, things put in place, systematic restraints put in place to prohibit or, or limit people to, from coming. And so we've been also charged with, you know, tackling and looking at our, our legislation and when was it put in place. And I think the, the thing where I feel is when you're a majority, right? This is where the pain comes, when you're a majority, right? And you feel the privilege to be able to, you know, look at someone because they're different and judge them. 
right, or not accept them. And I think that's the problem when people come to campuses where you're a majority. And it doesn't matter. Well, you can go to anywhere where you're the majority. Um, or if you're a majority, you have a privilege, right? When I'm in my community, I'm a, I have a privilege because we're the majority in that community. So if you don't look like me, I have the privilege to be able to judge you on how because you're different. So, again, it's, it's normal. It's human nature. But I think if we all are curious, and, again, I said this one time, I said curiosity bridges the gap or curiosity bridges ignorance. And we have to be curious. We have to be accepting. We have to want to educate ourselves more on who individuals are. And, and when we do that, we can understand them. And because they may not look like me or they don't, they don't talk like me, that doesn't make them any less. They're not inferior. So again, I think that's a, that's a, that's a bad, that's a, a, a sick of illness in your mind when you don't grow past your lack of curiosity. So again, I think how do you address that in Wisconsin? Like, and I think I'm a key. I think I'm a key person in something like that, right? I think, I, again, you a person that accomplished what I accomplished and and uh, came back to university. I mean, I came back under my own accord. I retired to come back here because of some of those issues, and I purposely wanted to go in administration. I wanted to be a face in administration, a young face in administration, and I wanted to say, let's tackle some of these because God of my uh, of what I've accomplished simply on a, on a sports end doesn't usually come back specifically when you're African-American. So, okay, let me be that first. Let me set precedent. Let me be the igniter. Let me be the catalyst of change. And that's where I came back and wanted to be that and present that to the university. Now, that's only the first part. Now now a person like myself has to be supported to be able to do some of the things and and truly create parts of the solution because I'm tied to uh, multiple generations. Of, of people of color that come from here, not just my generation or the generation after me. This days, this goes back to Michael Finley, um, Tracy Webster's, the you know even before them. So I, I've been in contact with multiple different athletes and Devin Harrison, and we talk and we try to figure out how can we create a better um, Wisconsin for tomorrow. And, tomorrow. Yeah, and is it is it just Wisconsin as a whole? Or is it Wisconsin athletics? Uh, obviously, you work for the athletic department, but like, is that what you're kind of thinking? Like, make it a better environment for uh, African American athletes that come to Wisconsin? Or are you talking about the campus as a whole? Yeah, I think we all have like every so life in life. It's not so sport isn't separate, and I think we have to evolve everywhere. Like, it's not again when I'm talking. Look at the world, right? And I, and the world is dealing with this again. And when I say Wisconsin is an exempt, sometimes we, we take it for granted, right? And we'll, we'll, it's limited when you have local um, press and you have local media that covers Wisconsin and say, hey, li- listen to a situation where it was a, you know, a noose incident at, at, at Camp Randall. You see where it's a homecoming incident. But now look at the world and look what's happening across the world. And it shows you that this is a problem. This is a, a, a something that's perpetuated. It's systemic. It's, it's an issue that does, has no border in this nation. So, again, Wisconsin, yeah, we need to address it not only from athletics. We need to address it in equity and inclusion on the, on, on the local level, for, so at the university, but the community, the state, because we're such a – athletics is the porch to, uh, to the university, right? It's the first thing. It's the curb appeal to the university. It's the, the most visible aspect of the university. So – of course, I think it needs to start in athletics. It's part partly needs to start, but then I think it needs to from there. It needs to kind of circulate and start uh, flowing into uh, into campus and to everywhere else. But I think simultaneously or at the same time or parallel, they need to be moving together. Both you know machines need to work together to figure out and create solutions for um, some of the the topics that we see, the pain points in our culture uh, in America. Probably not a good transition, but you mentioned the potential for becoming a for-profit business for for athletes. Um, I, I would, I mean, I would suggest it probably was it athlete empowerment essentially is is what it would be with the NCAA allowing athletes to uh, to get endorsements and essentially make na- uh, money off their name, likeness, or image. Uh, something that has not been the case. When you think about that, what are the positives in your mind, and what are the potential negatives that could come of that? Oh. I mean, it's a, it's a, again, that's a, this is a topic that, again, the NCAA is still addressing. They're trying to, you know, figure out. They're, they want to um, continue to uh, try to evolve. But I think it's only natural, right, that um, systems will inevitably um, change, right? And I think it's, as we look at how technology is now empowering the athlete even more. So from a, let's talk back, let's, let's take it back a second from the recruiting trail, right? When it, before a kid comes into your university, it's much different than it looked 
10 years ago and then 20 years ago, right, when I was, you know, being recruited. Like, they have more information at the palm of their hand to who you're recruiting, who you're talking to. So you cannot – you cannot, you have to be completely honest and transparent when you're recruiting a kid. They know every move you're making, and, and when you walk in their door, they've done more research on you than you've done on them. <laughs> so at that point, at that point, you, the empowerment has already shifted into their hands. So now they're looking at the world and looking at a LeBron James say to a system, listen, you're not going to keep sh- uh, shopping me around. I'm going to shop myself around. And so I'm going to make a decision to take my talent to uh, 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 Miami, and I'm going to uh, then recruit some other individuals to do the same thing. That right there and that visual empowered so many athletes because they're looking at, hey, wait, wow, we do have power. And because of technology and social media, and you can see the, the limits of – because everything in sport is top down. The the college college kids want to go to the NBA. Um, high school kids want to go to college, then go to the NBA, right? And then a middle school kid wants to get to high school and be the best they can. It's top down. So when you see athletes at the highest level, the way they're showing empowerment, it's naturally going to uh, uh, trickle down, matriculate into the, the the systems below. So college. These kids are looking at it. They're empowered. They're like, hey, we're a brand. And if you're not going to change, and one thing the NCAA is doing, if you're not going to change with the times, you're going to eventually become irrelevant. And now you're going to see moves where kids in high school will say, I'll go overseas and play because I don't need to. And most of the time, this system of college has been put on the backs of your star athletes and star programs, right? So, you know, NCAA, people chime in. Why do they chime into the NCAA? Well, you have narratives behind kids and, you know, great athletes that you push and you promote, and it gets, you know, TV time. And so it's a whole machine, right? And if kids start saying, if a Zion says, I'm not going to do, if a Jalen Green says, man, I'm going to forego my college uh, um, uh, um, career to go and play in the G League, you're going to start seeing a turnaround of events of multiple athletes doing it. Yeah, right now it might not be enough to touch the system, but eventually it's going to be enough kids to say, you know what, we're going to do something else. We're going to choose other paths. And if you take a lot of the elite kids off the collegiate level, then what do you have specifically from a visual of, 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 of you know, so I guess, again, t- touching it, the NCAA is evolving and it's changes happening so much, so quick. Um, University is going to have to pick right up with it. And do you think, uh, is it going to become part of recruiting? Say, say you're able to start uh, being able to make money off your name, image, or likeness, which it sounds like that is going to end up being the case. And there's, there's a whole bunch of, aspects to that but yeah is it going to be something that has to come into your recruiting pitch at that point are you saying oh yeah okay like so are you saying uh you come here these are the possibilities for you in that respect oh yeah i i think so okay i think, I think naturally i think naturally you're going to have to have a plan for an individual right they don't just come here and say the days of just saying hey we're here to win trophies are over right like, it's, it's about what can you do to elevate a kid in his life. And I think that's one – I know that all too well because I was a kid in this space. I was a kid that became a young man coming to university where I always, again, when we talked about prior to this and we prefaced it, where I always thought that I was more than an athlete. So what can you give to me outside of that? How can I – you know, it's a, it's a system of you're going to – they're going to strain everything they can from the individual, right? And, okay, how can we in turn give them – the, the, the biggest boost in their lives and their career, right? So you got to have a plan for every individual who comes in here. It's not going to be saying, oh, my – and it's not going to be just limited to saying, yeah, we're going to win Big Ten t- titles. We're going to win uh, – or, yeah, yeah, we go to the tournament every year. It's going to be different. It's going to say, this is your plan from day one. Yeah, and we're going to have to have a machine understanding um, the, 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 the pay-for-play, right, the name, image, and likeness. We're going to have to understand that, and we're going to have to start educating ourselves in the system, right? And so I don't know the, the, exactly. Again, we're still learning what that's going to look like uh, today. But when the moment comes and it, it's solidified and it's definite, and we have, we're going to have to – the way you recruit the athlete is going to be a whole nother pitch. It's really going to be a, a holistic sell approach, sales approach to saying why we're the best university and it won't be limited to X's and O's how we're playing. That's part of it. But it's going to be, what can I do for you? Which is going to change the whole game of college at that point. Right. What, what is Atlanta Tucker's pitch when he goes into media kid for the first time? Um, I tell him, I tell him, do your, I tell him, do your research or who I am. That, that's all. <laughs> I want you to do your research or go, who I am. Go get the record book, pull it out, Just, see, see who I am. Yeah, see who I am. And, and the great thing about it is Google and, and, and then also talk to the people that know me. Because, again, if you, I say, hey, listen, this is something that 
you have to trust the individuals that's around you. And I don't want to sell you on something that, again, and this is my first year, but I've been doing this for more years than, you know, just uh, this is my first year under the title of being a coach. I've been a life coach my whole life. So I've been coaching kids up from multiple areas, what they need to look for when they go to college, how do they ask questions. So I've been doing that from kids to my with kids in my community and uh, multiple communities and talking to pros about contracts and stuff. So I've been coaching for a long time. So when I go in, I say, you know, it's not what I say about myself or what I say about the program. You do your homework on me. I want you to do that first and foremost so we can meet at this line of trust. Ask the individuals about who I am and the trust they have with me, and then we can open up and start talking about, you know, um, what I see and what I like about who that individual is. So, again, it's just establishing that foundation, right, that foundation of trust, establishing the, the, the norms of how our conversations are going to be. So that's what it is. And, again, I just ultimately, yeah, yeah, it's part of that. Yeah, it's what I built up on the court. Look at the resume and who I was. So you know probably I know what I'm talking about. Look what I've done and how many years I played overseas. Look who's in my network. Look at, and if, when you know that, then you understand. I have some kind of. I hope I have some kind of uh, in-depth, concrete understanding about this game and the have to have the two for this game. And when you can understand that and then understand who I am as a person, as an individual, then I think you can have a lot of trust where individuals can can, can trust you and believe that you could be a mentor for them. Have you felt that? I mean, has, when you've been doing this, and you said you've been a life coach, and you know, and talking to people in your entire life, has it been kind of second nature? Then, because I honestly, as, as someone, I, yeah, I'm on air and do this, but like that just seems so uncomfortable. Like cold calling in sales is like as uncomfortable as it could possibly be, and I feel like this is not necessarily the same thing, but it kind of is. Like you're just rejection kind of sucks, and so like yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you have to get yeah. over that fear. Yeah. What's yeah. have you? Has it been kind of second nature though for you to do this? Yeah, so I so one of the things with me, one of the things with me is, and I get it because that is that is. I mean, just like public speaking, so you being on air is a fear of multiple people in the world. So you're doing something that is a fear of most uh, human nature is public speaking, right? Because um, the fear of being humiliated. So that also the fear of rejection is another thing. Like that's real, and we can talk about that. That's real. A lot of people don't want to face that and face it. That's real. The fear of rejection. You have to understand who you are. For me, it's not stuff. So imagine doing what you do, and I don't pick whatever your passion is internally or what you know your passion is. Now imagine trying, and you full wholeheartedly believe it. You know it because you've been doing it, whether it's telling someone about what it feels like to be on air, to, uh, to host a program. And to and if you can, and because you, your experiences. It is second nature. It's innate in you. It's like, this is what I am. It's not like I'm selling something that I don't know. Yeah. I'm selling who I've been since I can remember the day I picked up a basketball at the age of five or six that I was dribbling, that I know this game and I worked so hard. When I came here with a plan, I came to Wisconsin with a plan that I wanted to be in the history books. Now, did I know I was going to be all-time in score? No, but I know that I single-handedly had to strategically every day pick what I wanted to do to become one of the greats, right? So it was it wasn't by chance, it was by nature. And I've been through I went through obstacles. I had bumps in the road. I broke my foot. I had back injuries and you know, so I went through so much and I had to constantly bounce back and say, okay, what's the plan today that's gonna get me to a better tomorrow? What's the plan today? So I would strategically understand what I needed to do, who I needed to talk to in order to make more of what I needed to do in the room. So again, it's me selling who I am and the blueprints that I laid and the the breadcrumbs that I laid for the next generation, I think that's me then saying, listen, <laughs> I have no fear in that because I know who I am. Now, everybody is entitled to their choice. Like, you're going to have a choice, and you may not come here. It's okay, and that's okay. I just want, even when I'm, you know, if I'm recruiting someone and they choose to go somewhere else, hey, I still want to be a resource for you in, in your future because it isn't about just the system of trying to recruit kids to Wisconsin. I genuinely, when you get to knowing individuals and some of these, these students and student-athletes, I mean, you, you build good relationships with them and their family. So if you can serve as a resource, I'd never feel rejected. They're, they make the best business decision for themselves and their family. That's all that, that is for me. You mentioned this is your first year you know, doing this recruiting aspect of it. You know, you just finished your first year as an assistant coach. Are you, are you in? Are you in for life? Are you a coach for life? Or what, 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 is, uh, what, what does the future hold for you? Obviously, you took the job under the worst circumstances possible. What, what does the future hold for you? Oh man, that's a great question. That's still TBD. <laughs> that's still. It's. Uh, I, I'm writing the story. I kind of. I've always had a plan, and I always have a plan for myself. I did not see a plan for me being a coach in my immediate future. Yeah. Um, though I would not change this. This past. Well, I wouldn't change 
my from the coaching aspect, I wouldn't change this past year. I mean, I'm I came in in the most un is just the most unnormal, abnormal, uh, untypical, untypical, way, um, which is was tough in itself. But then being thrown everything from the topics that we talked about my first year, I like to think I've been hit with everything, right? Or <laughs> yeah. part of everything I've been hit with a pandemic, hit with you know tragedy, hit with you know, losing, you know, um, kids uh, at the university. I mean, a strength and conditioning coach and narratives being drawn out in the media and then coming and overcoming where we were to go on an eight-game win streak and win the, and share a title in the Big Ten, right? And, and partly and having a lot of influence in that, in that, in that stance, right, in that, in that position that we took, right? That, that in itself, I, like, that, that helped me grow as a person. So, again, I'm writing this story, and I'm kind of a couple pages ahead of everybody else that's reading. Um, I don't like to give the details too much. <laughs> to, I want you to kind of finish reading the story or, or, or watching the movie. But uh, I do know that I can say that um, I enjoy it. I enjoy could see myself if this something I did not normally see myself in this path. But now that I've done it and I know I can do this well, um, that's not the question. I know I can do this well. It's about um, how – how much longer could I be in a system when it's changing the way it's changing in NCAA? Um, uh, that's a question to be determined um, for me. But right now, I'm committed to the individuals that I started with, um, and we gotta again we're navigate this process of what's next. But I, we've been so tied into the pandemic, um, our season been cut short, and me trying to keep these guys motivated every day. So we'll again stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Um- before we move on to, to basketball and this team, how is Howard doing? Uh, obviously, Howard Moore and his, uh, went through that tragedy last May and losing his wife and, and daughter and him having to deal with what he's been dealing with. How is he doing? Um, Howard, Howard is progressing. Um, he's, I mean, for the sanctity and the, the respect for the family, you know, the wishes, it's the most I can give is that he, he's progressing every day, right? He's trying, he's getting better as a fight. Yep. He's fighting every single day. Um, and, 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 and everybody and all the energy is continues to be needed for him. Um, but he's progressing and, you know, his family, you know, is happy. His mom and talk to her almost every day. Uh, me and my wife is really trying to be a, a, a huge boost for the family and whatever we can alleviate from what they need to do and whatever they act. So we've always offered that because we, that's who we've been before. You know, that was, that's our relationship. So um, in respect to the situation and where he's at, you know, he's, he's progressing. And I think continued prayers, continued energy, whatever energy, positive energy you want to send, if, whether he's in your thoughts, I believe energy travels. Um, so if he's in your thoughts and prayers, continue to pray, continue to whatever it is you do to be able to pass energy. Um because it's needed because he's fighting this and he can't be fighting it alone. Right. And he's progressing every day just to get back to normalcy and a, in a state of, you know, um, everyday normal functioning. Yeah, definitely. All of our thoughts and prayers are with, with Howard, just moving into the team itself, nearly the entire thing returns. And uh, you mentioned the eight straight games to f- uh, finish the season, to win that share of the big 10 title. And so many hopes uh, and dreams, I'm sure, of making a deep run in March. I think all of us were looking forward to following and finishing out that story. Unfortunately, you didn't get to do it. But um, I've seen projections for this coming year because you return the whole team. Uh, you guys in the top ten to start the season. You were part of some pretty, you know, very high expected uh, teams that had very high expectations during your career. Will you address those expectations? Do you think when the team returns this uh, later this month, hopefully? Yeah, man, I remember uh, definitely. I think, uh, and we've kind of done it. Coach Guard has done a great job of talking to the guys and on Zoom and and trying to manage those expectations. We know, and a g- good thing is, right? We have a. It's not like this group was always um, touted or or, or 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 put in this light, right? They right. had everything thrown against them, so they know both ends of the spectrum when it comes to measuring, right? So they know what it's like. Any attention to now getting a lot of attention. You have to remain even kill, right? You can't become too emotional. And I think we've seen that even through the past year. We'd have games where we beat Ohio State, right? We beat Ohio State on the road, and then we come and drop a game that we shouldn't have dropped, right? And that's because sometimes we didn't know how to manage our emotions, right? And so again, that's where I, I try to talk all the time about emotional intelligence and what that looked like, and being able to navigate that. Again, that's a, another topic. But I think this game, if you watch, watch the last dance. And, and see the greatness of Phil. Phil, yeah, he, X's and O's, he did that. It was bigger. And, I, and that's where I know 
from me single-handedly understanding being in dynamics of man being down two with five seconds left and would make um, insightful decisions at high speeds, right? When things are changing, when the environment is constantly changing. So what I try to do is, yeah, I try to project that onto the athlete and say, hey, guys, like, understand that. And last year, nobody cared about you. Now everybody's going to jump on a bandwagon and care. We still have something to prove. And, and you know how easy that only thing happens when you get up there in the numbers, right? So you get high rankings. The target on your back becomes bigger. But see, when you're in the back, you, you see other people's targets on their back. So you're shooting for that. They're, now they're gunning for us, right? So every time it's going to be when we step into arena, it's going to be somebody's chance to prove that they can take down the, the, the number, whatever, Wisconsin, the top 10 Wisconsin, that nobody respects and feels that they should be there. So they're going to try to gun for us. So with that in mind, in our minds, we have to understand that, listen, ain't nothing changed since last year. We got to come and still work hard. And nothing's going to be given to us, and we got to go take it. So I think if we can continue to embody that mindset, we can carry over to from where we started. Well, this is smart. And basketball, one game, you know, change a lot, right, and specifically in ranking. So we got to make sure that we're living to our end of the bargain by working hard as hard as we can every day to make sure that we ensure that, you know, we put ourselves in the best position when we step out in that court in between those lines. There was a lot said towards the end of eh, – Probably in January and February, things weren't necessarily going the way that you guys would like them to. And then, obviously, the Kobe situation pops up at the end of January. And, you know, there were, there were uh, a lot of crazy I'm, – I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Uh, there were a lot of crazies on social media and some within the media that were saying that maybe Greg Gard's not the, the guy for this position. They need to get him out of there. He's not, he's, he just can't handle it. How satisfying was it, not just for a team to, to you know, do what you guys did, but as a staff to kind of, you know, quietly – Shut all those people up by the end of uh, by the middle of March. Yeah, man. Well, um, it's as <laughs> as much as you talk about, you know, and specifically when we talk about the system, right? The system set up though, like a coach, right? They they have to shoulder most of the blame, and they're gonna you're gonna have to shoulder most of the blame. Um, and you try to continue to to shield the athletes from taking that, you know, those hits, right? And you want to. I think when you're taking hits and you're constantly taking punches to the body and though you can smile while you're getting hit in the body and you're taking a bunch of body shots, when you can hit that knockout punch, imagine how satisfying that is when yeah. you're taking hits every single round. Every single round you're taking hits and you're just waiting. You're like, okay, okay, but they don't know what I have. And again, from my stance, it was being hit with all these body shots, all these body shots, but you're, you're sticking to your game plan and you're trying to shield. Again, you have people behind you that you're trying to shield. And for me, from from my stance to see our athletes do what they did and to 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 see us be resilient as a program and not only from Greg Gard but every single person down to the video uh, director of video services our GA from um, our Dobo to assistant Dobo to the individuals within our program that sits just as a receptionist or you know no matter who you were right we embodied something different this year because of what we experienced prior to coming to the season with. You know, the more family tragedy with things. There was things in us that we said, this is bigger for us. This is bigger. So we don't care what people say. And, and for me, it's so satisfying to go through all of what we did this year and to come out and do something that you set out to do when you're counted out, right? And I think the, the great thing about the underdog story and the great underdog story, it's satisfying for the, for the person when your odds are against you to be able to make it out. And, and, and achieve some level of success. On that same note, man, when you're hitting, you get hit by those, in those with those body blows, man. That one good sweet Ali punch will make you feel really good about yourself. Yeah, and I, I think he had that Ali punch uh, at uh, Indiana when the final buzzer went off. All you guys did, you know, you used to be when you played. You used to be the one of the few true freshmen that in this era, the Bo Ryan, Greg Gard era, that that made an impact right away. But that's changed, obviously, in recent years. We've seen guys, true freshmen, make impacts. With only Brevin Pritzel leaving, there doesn't appear to be a ton of minutes available. But do you think any of the five true freshmen that you guys got coming in will be able to help? And is there any chance of that, you think? Or is it going to be wait until they, they get on campus before you can make anything yeah. like that? Yeah, you can't make that assessment really until they get on campus, right? And for to be honest, it's on the individual. Like, when I came here, a system was put in place, right? And and I had, a, like, Coach Bo Ryan didn't play. He didn't play. He didn't. He never changed his starting lineup. But he went with a lineup prior to the season. He kind of knew he was going to have. Coaches do that. They know they're going to have. And it's those ones that really got something inside of them say that, 
you know, I want to be, you know, I'm going to be special. I'm going to take it on myself to work as hard as I can to get on that court, right? It's still a land of opportunity. And I always seize the opportunity, right? Carpe diem. I wanted to seize the day. And so, like, when I, when I stepped on campus, I looked at who's, that, who's the best player on campus, right? And I kind of knew it before, but I, who's two of the best, you know? Okay, let me mimic and imitate everything they do and let me do it better. So when I stepped on campus, it was Kirk Penny. You had Devin Harris. You had, so I said, okay. Okay, I see what they, these guys are doing. You have Freddie Owens. I see what these guys are doing. Okay, in the weight room, what are they doing? In the classroom, what are they doing? I want to excel them on every single level, right? And I want to – so, again, if I continue to do that, at some point I'm going to pass them up in a race, even quicker than they may expect it or someone expected. This is a competition on every – so even though within teams and family, there's always going to be competition. So for people to understand or, or not – or miss that point, so when these freshmen come here, I fully expect them to go at the seniors as hard as they can. We won't know how to assess that and who's willing to step up as soon as possible until they get here. But it's an open opportunity, man. It's an open field of play. This game of sport is, man, the, 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 the strongest survive. So, um, man, when they get up here, I think we have some talented freshmen. I think, obviously, no, we have some talented guys coming back. But the competition breeds for um, a successful team or a great team if they can compete every day in practice. And if I'm a and one thing about John Stockton, it's funny a story real quick. I don't want to just ramble on, but John Stockton, when he talked about what made him great, is because every single year he thought someone he felt like, even though he didn't even realize being in his skin at the time that he was who he was, he felt like every time every year they drafted somebody, they were going to take his spot. So he had to work hard, work hard. So hopefully that you know with these six freshmen coming in and they're hungry and they want to take a spot that these. These seniors say, you know what, you're not going to take my spot, young fella, just yet. So, again, hopefully we invite that mindset. And that healthy competition is what breeds. And, and once you understand we're all trying to move towards the same goal, I think that healthy competition can only help us out with having six new guys that are eager, energetic, and going to come with a ball of energy that, you know, trying to figure out their way and get on the court. All right, I'm going to give you the, the names of those guys. There's six of them. I, you tell me. You uh, give me one little snippet on each of them. Ben Carlson, the forward from Minnesota. I mean, this dude is like his IQ, IQ out of the charts, knowing the game. I mean, already has the physical ability. Um, Going to be a force to reckon with just as he grows and continues to, to build out. But I'm um, super excited about just having him here because just understanding where his body is, but where his mind matches his uh, physical physique at this uh, stage in his career. Johnny Davis out of lacrosse, the guard. Um, athletic, man. He kind of um, does a little bit of everything, but just uh, on a high school level, a go-to guy. You get the ball and you say, get out of his way. He can get things done. Um, so he has a demeanor and an edge about himself that, um, that, that sets him apart. Lauren Bowman out of Min- uh, Michigan, the, the point guard. Tough grit, tough nose guard that, I mean, knows the game from a point guard position. That lead, He's a leader in himself. Uh, just, again, you can see it. He demands or commands respect when he's on the court. Uh, not only his teammates, he, he commands respect of his, his uh, opponents. So, again, understands how to play the game. Tough nose. Got that grit and edge to him that, that's, you know, that's needed here at Wisconsin. Stephen Crowell, the, the, uh, the forward out of Minnesota. Man, mics out. Shoot it. You talk about Nate Reavers and you see guys of the past and you talk about Wisconsin. Uh, who excels at Wisconsin? Um, big that can get out and stroke it and, and understands the game from that level and has that, that uh, characteristic about their game. But, I mean, he has, you know, game in a post that gets um, overshadowed and overlooked. But, I mean, just long that's going to be able to contribute. And you, when you look at the history of Wisconsin, the Nate Reavers, the Brian Butchers, the Frank Kaminsky, I mean, he falls right in that echelon. Jordan Davis, the other guard out of lacrosse, or the swing, coming, I guess. Yeah, so coming straight, I mean, he's, again, the unique aspect of what we're getting is he's bred from the same Davis family. So you get him coming in with that same grit, that same edge, um, can, can shoot it, can do a little bit of all. And, uh, again, he has that same passion and desire because he's under the same household. And, and him and Johnny has had to compete <laughs> every day since they were born. Uh, against each other. So, again, in terms of – but at the same time, that healthy competition that pushed each one of them to be good. So, you see Johnny, you're seeing Jordan. And then the walk-in, as I mentioned before, Carter Gilmore the, uh, out of Arrowhead, who turned down scholarship offers to walk on. That right there in itself says who he is, right? He turned down scholarships to walk onto a program where he could have went and played. But this kid, do not mistake – they're not mistaking him 
because he doesn't have a scholarship under his name right now when he walks on the campus. This kid has shown on the high school level his capabilities his, and, and how good he is. So he's a guy that's going to be respected, and I don't think you're going to look at him as a normal walk-on. You don't just, you know, this kid had scholarship offers at multiple universities that's coming to play. So that speaks in itself to who he is as an athlete and what he can do. Before I let you go, I need to ask a couple questions about your career. The first being, and I've asked uh, Bo Ryan this, and I've asked Brian Butch this, the 6 7 team, if Brian doesn't get hurt, you guys a Final Four team? We're, listen, listen, we're winning. <laughs> I, so, like, I, and again, this is the confidence I had. When I came here, no one told us we'd ever be number one ranked ever. You yeah. know, no one would ever expect it. In my mind, I knew it, and I talked to our group. I was telling the Joe Krabinoff, the Marcus Landry's, the Ray Nixon. I'd go down the line to Brian Butchers that, hey, listen, we're going to be number one. You just got to believe it. You got to feel it. And you got to believe it more so than people doubt it. And so in my mind, again, it's the woulda, coulda, shoulda, so you always act these and, and everything. But me naturally as a player, the team that we had, where we were, were the positioning, um, I felt that we, again, when Big Ten teams go in the tournament, they fare well because of the physicality, the play and the style of play. Um, historically and I understood our team and I mean two of the top teams were us in Ohio State in the country I felt like we win that um we beat Ohio State we remain number one if Brian Bush doesn't go down that game um it, so many things changed because Brian was such an uh, integral part to the team and a dynamic at that time of the season that if you lose man it's tough and people don't understand in, in college it's not about how you start in the season it's about how you're trending in terms of um, chemistry towards the end, but also with health. And those are some of the dynamics that change the forecast of a team. And so when you lose one of those, like, you know, you don't have good chemistry towards the end or you lose someone to health, it's hard for people to step in at that point and pick up for the loss. So, um, yeah, man, we winning it all for me. <laughs> yeah, hey, I thought so too. I was I was in Chicago for that, that game against UNLV, and, it, you know, it, it was disappointing, but it's also, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you guys did yeah. some great things. The first team, the only team that's ever reached number one from Wisconsin. But uh, your career, so many memorable dunks. Like, I think a lot of people, when they think of your career, obviously you're a great scorer, but some of the dunks, because you were the first guy that would regularly dunk in a game. Like, it had been since Michael Finley that that was happening all the time. Um, I'm wondering, and obviously the foot injury, I know you weren't trying to dunk nearly as much as you did earlier in your career after the foot injury, but do you have a favorite dunk? That uh, you go back to think of, like the one that comes to mind, and I don't know, I don't want to take yours, but it's the one that gets still gets shown all the time, and that's uh, against Pittsburgh, you know, from Cam Taylor, yeah. the alley oop. But what, what is, is there a favorite for you? That's, I mean, I had so many. I, it's funny, I, now that I have kids, I told my, I told my, I'm having my uh, the director video, our director video, um, I'm having him give me all of my games, the collection. I want to go back and see, man, when I was in the moment, I did so many. Yeah. That it was, and it's not just like, really said, like, um, just from a stance of, like, it really is, did so many, and I had so many different moments. But one that really stood out, obviously the Pittsburgh, because the, the weight of that game, um, who they were and the, the, the degree of pressure just coming into that game with a number two stepping in and knowing that we were going to show the world that where we belong. So, like, that was special in itself, um, having Dick Vitale at the game. So all those things, that, those dynamics that makes that uh, memorable. Uh, but just one for me is personally – it's a it's a dunk versus Northwestern. Uh, Coach Moore talked about this all the time. Howard would talk about it, and we were playing kind of bad. We were down there. We were getting lulled to sleep um, in that all Princeton offense, and we were, you know, and I, and I wasn't stepping up to the plate. You know, I was kind of like playing. I was going through the motion, like we're going to win this game. And uh, and and Coach Ryan had a choice of words for me um, in, in the timeout. <laughs> uh, me being the leader. Yeah. So you can probably, if if anybody knows Bo Ryan, those choice of words, you probably can figure <laughs> out. So Bo Ryan never really had to go at me because he understood I was a person that, like, Bo Ryan was passionate and he was competitive and he challenged people if he felt like they weren't competing because he wanted to compete. He, he's an ultimate competitor, right? And it's all, you know, so he was a competitor. Um, and sometimes you played out of spite of that competition. Like, I, I played because I'm like, man, this dude is, like, going so – he's on us all the time in practice, on us. So he had a choice of words for me and I had a choice of words back. Um, that exchange, you know, and, and after that exchange, it was a moment where I had it on the left baseline, I pump, and I and I jab faked, and I took a couple dribbles, and I jumped, and I almost cleared this kid. This kid just like was trying to take a charge, and I took off from uh, beyond the block, and and he kind of like leaned back as if he didn't want to get touched, and I like I'm like almost parallel in the air, 
two-hand dunk, tomahawk dunk, boom, dunk it. And the whole time I'm, having a, I'm continuing my way down the court with a choice of words for Bo Ryan, saying, <laughs> do, you know, do you know who I am? You know, and so, and, and so it, it, but it, that's the uniqueness about my relationship with Coach Ryan. He knew how to get that out of me, when to get it out of me. Um, but that was a dunk because, you know, at that point it was like, you know, I felt like he turned on a switch or I turned on a switch when I, in the moment I needed to and for my team to see it and understand how I would react because they all looked at me in, in terms of how I react to when, you know, a coach would say something or challenge you. And, um, but I just, that's a moment that, you know, it stood out as a dunk that we still talk about internally with the coaches or what me and Howard would talk about all the time because he was like, man, I had never seen nothing like that and, and the way you responded. So I love that. I love that. Uh, the other dunk, it wasn't a dunk. It was, a, it was just a lay-in. Kentucky, you've seen the picture. The picture's everywhere. Yeah. It's the, it, it may be the most famous picture in Wisconsin basketball history, perhaps. Uh, you're just against Kentucky, Sweet 16, 2003 up in the Metrodome, just yeah. hovering at the rim. And I, I had never seen the play, actually. Uh-huh. All right, I didn't remember seeing the play. I was at the game, so I don't think I, I got to go back and look at it. But I went back and looked at it in March, and it's, you just hang there. Like The picture is totally representative, and I think you may have been on your way down at the point the picture was taken. What do you remember from that play? Man, it's like, honestly, just in all honesty, like that play right there, that picture is, yeah, obviously my most, it's my favorite picture. Um, that's, in more, that. that's in more dens than I think any, like in like the uh, the rec room and the basement. Like that, that picture's on so many people's <laughs> walls. It's amazing. But go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. It's fine. You can cut in anytime. It's like, no, it's, that picture was, man, it's just, as a freshman playing in on that stage, every kid wants to be in the big or the NCAA tournament. But the um, the the massive amount of individual people that were the fans that was in the stands, like just the things that I can kind of go back to. And at that moment when I, that happened, probably the highest moment I jumped in my life. Like I literally remember. To me, maybe I'm exaggerating, but in my mind, I was staring above the rim. So people. The play was the ball was tipping on the back. So, like, everybody asked, like, why did you dunk that? Because I was waiting. It felt like I was literally hovering and I was flying at that moment. And I remember looking and I'm like, nobody's up here. But I'm gracefully, like, waiting for the ball to come off the rim. And I'm like, it's bounce, bounce, bounce. I catch it with my right hand and just lay it in. But it's like I didn't land and it felt like I was up there for five seconds. Now, if you replay it and you look, but it's just in my mind. And I remember talking to Tony Bennett at the time. Tony Bennett was like, as great as that pitcher is, he says, as great as that pitcher is, they caught you coming down. That's the first thing he said after the game. Like, and, you know, we lost the game. You know, I'm feeling – I'm sad. I'm not worried. But he said, he's like, man, I don't think you know, like, what you did. And he was like and, – and I didn't know it until the day or when the pitcher was released. But Tony Bennett was like, yeah, the great the, – the, the thing about it – Tony Bennett, obviously, just for reference, the coach of Virginia right yeah, now. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, he, he was like – he said, man, kid, I, I don't think you know – what you did, that camera, they caught you on the way down. And it was like, wow. I was like, man, for me, I knew I was above the rim and I saw it, but you know, it's just, but it's still in this stuff. It's a great picture all around. I yeah, love it. Yeah, no, I remember being in college when you first showed up and came, I was still in college or I was in college at the time. And um, did, you had like 20 rebounds one game, didn't you? Uh, I, close to, I think, was it 18, 18 or 19? So that was, and, yeah, and, my first game. Yep. Yeah. How does a guy at 6'5 get that many rebounds? Again, that's where I talked about something inside you that it's like the person in front of me won't outcompete me. He won't because I know how hard I didn't work, and I know how hard I worked. I know I know the confidence that I have inside of me that I'm not gonna let you beat me. I'm, I won't. I just re, I refuse. I try to carry that wherever I go. I talk to the coaches. It's funny. I talk and I say this. I say, listen, I I don't I don't know how to lose. And I say, and I, again, this is it's a borderline between having being cocky and being very confident. Off the court, and the coaches know this. They say, man, this is the most humble guy. They talk to the players. Coach Guard, when I came back, he's like, if you don't know him, off the court, he's like, he's, man, every, thank you, sir, thank you, ma'am. He's just not – that's who I am. When I get on that court, I flip a switch. Even when I'm talking basketball, I flip a switch, and I have that confidence about me. So it's, it's borderline. Like, right, my confidence is so high, but I still appreciate and respect. Uh, I have respect for the game. Listen, at my size and at my – like, I didn't care how big you were. I don't care how small you were. I felt like I was the biggest person on the court, um, always. So my first game, that was the UNLV game, and it was coach. It was my first start of the season. My first start, yep. I felt like, okay, this is my chance to show the world who Orlando is, or show even my team who I am. And 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 I'm a and I'm a and I'm a hold the coach. I'm make sure I don't make Bo Ryan look bad. 
I'm gonna make sure I make. And so, 24 points, 18 at the end of that game, right? And it was as a freshman, That's and that insane. was kind of my my way of saying, "Hey, I've arrived." <laughs> it was just insane. It was amazing, and your career in general was amazing. One of the, I think, uh, you know, being at the time way before I started covering the the team, one of my favorite Badgers of all time is uh, Orlando Tucker, and uh, it was just awesome to have you on the team, and and awesome for this this hour. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been amazing, and uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Hopefully downtown, watching some basketball uh, on campus, and hopefully seeing you you guys this fall. Oh man, listen, thank you for having me. I appreciate just your last sentiments right there and what you shared. That that means a lot. You know, I, I appreciate that so much. I don't take those those words lightly. Whenever you know someone says that, so thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It was great being able to catch up, talk, and using the platform. I appreciate the questions you asked me prior to this about just everything that's going on in the climate. Um, no, really had fun. Thank you, thank you for having me on the show. So there he was, Wisconsin assistant coach Orlando Tucker. Certainly appreciate his time over the past hour. Wasn't expecting it to be an hour. I could have gone for two or three hours, had enough questions for him. Uh, a fascinating individual who has uh, gone from one of the great players in program history to being a great pro and now back to the university as assistant coach and had a pretty successful first year. So do appreciate his time and I do appreciate everybody else's time for listening. Uh, until next time, you've been listening to The Swing here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.